And we are in week two of a series that Craig kicked off for us last week called God and Money. And I know that as soon as I say the words God and Money, you're like, why ruin a perfectly good sermon by talking about money? All right, because maybe you've got a number of things that come to mind. Maybe you think to yourself, shouldn't the church speak more about, uh, you know, churchy things? Shouldn't the church be speaking more about, you know, Jesus and, you know, uh, small groups and prayer and worship and mission and leave money for my financial manager? And, and, or maybe you're thinking that, okay, okay, here we go. Here we go. I told you. I told you, here it comes. I've seen this before. I've seen it on TV. I've seen it in other churches. All the church wants is our money. Alright, so we maybe have a number of objections as we come to a series such as this and maybe you're asking a number of questions. And I'm so glad that you are asking these questions because a couple of things come to mind. The first one is this. Out of all the commodities that we engage in, other than time, money is probably the single greatest commodity that we arrange our lives around. If you think about it, we spend most of our time preparing through schooling and varsity to make money. And then we spend most of our time making money and we spend the rest of our time spending money. All right, and and I don't just mean luxuries. I'm talking about it takes money to go to school. It takes money to put food on the table. It takes money to put fuel in the car. It takes money to buy the car. It takes money to rent the house. It takes money to do all of these things. So most of our waking time is used and centered around money. And if that is true, it would be kind of weird if the Bible had nothing to say about this thing that we orientate our lives around, right? Right? The other thing that uh, I think of as I think about money is related to the first one, and that is this. Most of our issues come from two areas, and I think you'd probably agree with me, sex and money. So when we're talking about counseling, or we're talking about a, a breakup in a marriage, or a difficulty in a relationship, or identity issues, or troubles from our past, or uh, what is really getting me down, or what's becoming an idol in my life, most, not all, but most of our brokenness can come down to how we relate to sex and money. And again, it'd be really weird if that is true, if Jesus had nothing to say about those things. So as it happens... Jesus has a whole lot to say about sex and money. And as it happens, Jesus has a whole lot to say about money. And as Craig said last week, if Jesus talks about it, especially if he talks about it a lot, we better be very faithful in talking about the same things. In fact, if you are a Christian, by definition, and maybe another word for that is a disciple, and Jesus actually says, you know, go into the world, make disciples, and then teaching them to obey Everything that I've commanded you. That is the definition of a Christian. That is the definition of a disciple teaching to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And if he talks a lot about money, that's going to include that. Now, you might be sitting here this morning, you've been dragged along, you've been promised good coffee, good brownies, you're not particularly religious, you don't see yourself as a Christian. And I want to say to you, you're off the hook this morning. But the rest of us are on the hook because we are disciples and we have to do everything that Jesus commanded us. Now last week, as Bianca mentioned, we learned that everything we own belongs to God. 
Now I know a primary objection to that is, but, but it was my money that I earned and my parents sacrificed greatly or my great-grandparents arrived in South Africa with 10 rand in their pockets and built up the empire or built up the business or gave me the know-how or gave me the street smarts or gave me the DNA in order to do what I do. And here's the thing, that nothing we have, be it my abilities and the breath in my lungs and my, um, my mental and, uh, str- and intellectual strength, None of that comes from me. It always comes from someone else and it's always going to go back to God, which means that God owns everything we have. And a better way for us to relate to our possessions is not as owner, but as steward. It's like a manager. Here's what God has entrusted into my hands and then I spend the rest of my day saying, God, if this belongs to you, how best can I manage what you have entrusted into me? And if you weren't here last week, I strongly encourage you to download the message from last week. Now, going back to Jesus, I mentioned earlier that he speaks a lot about money. And he does get really practical at times and we are gonna hear that in the coming weeks. But the biggest emphasis that Jesus makes when talking about money is the place that money holds in your heart. He goes straight for the heart every single time. In other words, he's talking about what does money hold on you? How do you look to money instead of God for the things that only God can give? How do you look to money for hope? How do you look to money for uh, meaningfulness and uh, purpose and uh, protect you from the things of this world and maybe even the things of the next? Only God can give us those things. But to what degree are we looking to money in our possessions for that? So as we talk about this, uh, I want to talk about two areas that I think we can position money wrongly in our hearts. Maybe another, another way of saying it is to two wrong ways that we think about money. And the first way, uh, this might shock some of you, is this. Money is bad. That would be a wrong way of thinking about money. Now, most of you sitting here are saying, Stephen, I have no clue what that means because I don't have that problem. All right, most of us may be thinking money is really good, but some of us are thinking money is bad. Now I know in certain circles and even some church circles, they would talk about money in such a way that we would call the prosperity gospel. That if you are a righteous person or if you are right with God, that means that you're going to be printing money. So we would reject that. I don't think, you know, we've looked at Paul's life. I don't think we've looked at Jesus' life when we look at these things. So we would reject the prosperity gospel, which leads to materialism. But sometimes as a reaction against the prosperity gospel, sometimes churches can talk about money in such a way that we start sounding like a poverty gospel. That if you're a righteous person, you need to be poor and we celebrate poverty. And what comes through that is almost like money is bad. Sometimes because we don't actually talk about it. Kind of like that weird uncle in the family. It's like, well, mom and dad never talk about him, so he must be a bad thing. All right, and our pastors at our church never talk about money, so it must be a bad thing. Or sometimes, again, as a reaction to that, we talk about money so that it's like this evil, bad thing that we need to get rid of. You may have even heard people quote the Bible to show you that money is bad, saying that money is the root of all evil. You've heard that? except that's misquoting the Bible. Because the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what is a better way to see money? Well, 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, here's Paul, a seasoned pastor, writing to a young guy like me who's leading a church, and he says this, for everything God created is good. 
and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Just listen to that. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God. In other words, what does God say about this thing? And prayer, meaning I live this in a life of devotion. You see, money can be used to buy sex. Money can be used for corruption. Money can be used for selfish gain. In those cases, money is not the evil commodity, but I am the evil commodity. But equally, money can be used to fund missions and build churches and build schools and hospitals and help alleviate the poor in their times of difficulty. In that case, money is used for good. So money is a commodity that can be used for evil or for good. So how do I go from there to challenging this idea that money is bad? Do you know... And I haven't heard too many people comment on this from the scriptures. But do you know that God actually commands us to enjoy the things he gives us? God commands us to enjoy the things he gives us. 1 Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present world, by the way, that's all of us, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with, the, with everything for our enjoyment. Now we're going to come back to the first half of this verse just now. But God gives us things for our enjoyment. I don't know if you as a Christian, maybe grown up in a, a, a church type environment that almost has this money is bad concept. Do you ever feel guilty eating that steak? Or guilty, in my case, going on a fly fishing holiday? And maybe you're like, Stephen, I don't have a problem with guilt. I am totally happy enjoying the things. But maybe you feel like maybe the church wants you to feel guilty about these things. And God is saying, no, no, no. I have given you things. I have blessed you with things. I have entrusted things into your hand. And part of my purposes for that is for you to enjoy them. And to allow these good things to point you towards a good God. So it would be an error to see that money is bad. But sometimes now as a reaction, we do enjoy our things, but we enjoy them so much, money becomes God. Money is not just good, but money becomes God. Now I'm going to start using the word materialism or referring to some people as materialists. What I mean by materialism is not money. Don't mistake materialism with money. I'm going to use some loose biblical definitions for materialism. The love of money. All right, we've already established there's a difference between money and the love of money. So when I use the word materialism, I'm referring to the love of money. The love of money. Sometimes we enjoy money so much, it does become something that we love too much. Randy Alcorn, and we're using his book as a guide for us in this series. He says this, God created us to love people and use things. But materialists love things and use people. So when money starts to become the thing in my heart that I love most, or that I look for for hope and identity, when I become a materialist, we start to become something that we see so easily in other people, but we find it so difficult to see in ourselves. It's a word we hate. We hate to be called greedy. But the Bible has so much to say about greed. Jesus says, Luke 12, 15, watch out. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, so why is Jesus getting us to be so alert about greed? I mean, I guarantee you, if I had to have a poll uh, or take a poll from you guys and ask you, do you think you're greedy? Even if it is a secret poll, I suspect that 100% of you would come back saying, no, 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 I'm not greedy. Maybe the person next to me is greedy. Maybe my wife's greedy, my husband, my kids are greedy. Maybe if I earned what that person earned, then maybe I'd be greedy. But we don't see it in ourselves. See, part of the thing is we all see ourselves as middle class because there's always someone wealthier than you. And someone's looking at you saying, if I earned what they earned, maybe then I'd be greedy. But you're like, hey, I'm not greedy because I know 20 people who earn way more than what I earn. And maybe if I earned what they were earning, then I'd be greedy. And they are thinking exactly the same things. We cannot see greed in the mirror. So Jesus is saying, watch out. We need to learn to see this in ourselves. So back to that verse that we looked looked at earlier about God giving us things for our enjoyment. Let's read the whole verse now and see what we can learn from it. See how it teaches us. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. See, he's not saying, command those who are rich in this world to become poor. He's going for the hearts. He's saying the problem is not money. The problem is materialism. The problem is the place that money has in your heart. So let's deal with the heart. He's not saying, give here, give here, do this, do that. No, no, no. He's saying, put your hope somewhere else. Put your hope in God who is certain. And we've just been looking at that in the book of 1 Peter. The way Jesus says it, he says in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here's Jesus setting up a scenario whereby we're looking at two masters. And when you hear the word master, and this is just me, but I think most of us picture like a boss. You know, and, and, and a boss who's like, a really, you know, he's a boss. He comes in and he tells you what to do. You don't really like what he has to say all the time. But when he's in the room, you know he's in the room and he's telling you exactly what to do. And you're saying, well, I don't know if I relate to money like a boss. But when Jesus is talking about your master, he's talking about something or someone that has mastery over you. In other words, whether you are aware of it or not, it's not like your wallet stands up and commands you what you should be doing with your money this afternoon, although some of you feel that way. Um, He's saying, to what degree does money or God have mastery over you? To what degree do your possessions have mastery over you? And, And this is why Jesus speaks so much about money. Because he knows that money in our possessions are the single biggest contender for your heart. And because he wants your heart and he wants to sit on the throne and he wants the one to be giving you meaning, he wants the one to be giving you purpose and freedom and life, the single biggest contender for that role in our lives is gonna be our stuff and our bank accounts. So Randy Alcorn talks about a number of spiritual dangers that come from materialism. Again, not money per se, 
but the love of money. And we're going to talk about four of them. And the first one is this. Materialism hinders or destroys our spiritual lives. In Revelation 3.17, so this is 2,000 years ago. This is not a new thing. Uh, The apostle John is writing to this church and he says this about them. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. See, when you've got everything that you ever need and when you've got everything that you ever want and when you're able to look at something and click and buy it and enjoy it this afternoon, we start to believe that we don't need anything else. That's why we call it materialism. We start to believe that all I need are these things. All I need are the things that I can see and taste and touch and enjoy. And we actually become increasingly blinded to the fact that my heart is spiritually poor and in need of something far greater that money cannot provide. And for that reason, materialism, the love of money, hinders or destroys our spiritual lives. Number two, materialism, not money, but materialism brings us unhappiness and anxiety. Again, Paul writing to Timothy in 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. There we go. That's that verse that we looked at earlier. Some people, eager for money. Again, here's the thing. I'm orientating my life around money and the search for money and more money. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So how, how does that happen? Maybe some of you would love to be in that position to see if money will ruin you in that way. Someone that we don't often quote in a church context is um, the dead atheistic philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He became famous for his God is dead theory and a very nihilistic worldview, depressing worldview. And he predicted that as God moves from the center of culture to the periphery and eventually outside of culture, he predicted that money will fill the vacuum. This is an atheistic philosopher. And this is what he said. It won't be on the screen, but just listen to this. What induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud? What gives rise to all this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. But they are urged on day and night by a terrible longing and love for those heaps of gold. What was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feelings of power and a good conscience. What he's saying is as we chase these piles of gold, as we look to them for a good conscience and a feeling of power, because yes, momentarily it does make us feel good and they do give us things that make us feel good. We become overwhelmed by an increasing desire. That's why we call it an appetite. It's not like I eat lunch and then I'm done for the rest of the year. No, 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 I eat lunch and then I've got to eat dinner. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of those buffets where you pig out and you're still hungry the next day. How that happens, I have no idea. But that's the thing, appetites grow. And if at the center of our desires is money, we chase and chase and chase, and in the process, we actually ruin ourselves. 
Which leads us to the third thing. Materialism ends in futility. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. This is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 and a few verses after that. Come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Even the wealthy among us sometimes need to say no to something because it's more expensive. It's too expensive. That was not a problem for this man. There was no thing that he could not afford. There was no person that he could not afford. There was no pleasure he could not afford. And on the basis of that, he went head first in hook, line and sinker and enjoyed it all. And here is his conclusion. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Is it no wonder that in some of the places of this world where people have the most are the highest rates of depression and the highest rates of futility and the highest rates of suicide. One can go to a place like Hollywood where people just have insurmountable numbers of money. And yet it is so filtered through with lack of meaning and lack of purpose and hopelessness. They're experiencing this point that materialism ends in futility and finally materialism leads to pride pride sorry and elitism we as human beings we're very funny creatures when we succeed at something we say it's because of internal factors and when we lose at something we say it's because of external factors right so i lost the tennis game i don't know you know my foot was sore and i know it's the wind or we have a you know, horrible business deal or something goes wrong in life. We're like, oh no, it's the economy, no, it's the politics, or that, that guy is the corruption. But when things go well, ah, it's all me. All right, that is my genius. That is my good decision. The success is because of me. And therefore, a very short, there's a very short jump between that and having lots of things and lots of stuff and actually feeling like Superman. It's all me. It's all because of me. I'm better than you. A psychologist by the name of Professor Paul Piff, the University of California, he did some studies on how money influenced humans' behavior. So one of the experiments that they would do is they would get a whole lot of people to play Monopoly. And they would rig the game in such a way that one person out of the game would get given double as their path go. And then they would also get extra throws. And what they started observing is that the more money these people amassed, again, it's fake money, it's a game, they would get increasingly arrogant, kind of slapping their pieces down on the board and throwing shade on the other guys, telling them how stupid they are. And then afterwards, all the guys who won would get together saying, look how clever we are. And this is his conclusion. What we've been finding is that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. And the feelings of entitlement or deservingness and the ideology of self-interest increase. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. The scriptures are filled with godly, righteous, wealthy people. Both the Old and the New Testament and history and even this room is filled with godly, righteous, wealthy people. 
But what he's saying here is he has a very common trap that if we're not watching out, we're going to fall into this trap. Somehow, well, I worked hard as opposed to the guy who works 16 hours a day digging up a road. And I deserve everything I've got. As opposed to seeing God as owner and me as steward. So often as we start uh, preparing uh, to come to the table now this morning, so often now when we talk about God and money, uh, a natural impulse is, here's something that God wants from me. God wants my money. God wants to take my lovely, precious money, right? But here's the thing. God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. What does God want for you? You see, he knows something you don't know. He knows that money makes an excellent servant, but a horrible God. When was the last time your wealth or your possessions laid itself down to give you life? Don't you find the reverse always true? Don't you find yourself needing to work harder and harder and harder and lay yourself down for it to make more of these piles of gold? Don't you find yourself experiencing greater strain in life and marriage and not spending enough time with your kids as we chase these piles of money? Don't you find yourself the slave and it's the God? And Jesus knows that. And he says, here's what I want for you. And if I was thinking just through all the things that God wants for us as we approach this topic is this word. This word, it comes to the top for me. What God wants for you is freedom. True freedom, where your heart is free, set free from false gods. Now, if you, for some reason, are on the money is bad mentality, he wants you to be free to enjoy the things he gives you. And to allow these things to point towards a good good God, a good Father in heaven. But if we're more on the money is God spectrum, side of the spectrum, God wants us to be free from that slavery. He wants you to be free to make decisions according to His kingdom for your family and for your greatest good and your greatest joy. He knows that if you make money your God, you are not going to experience the joy you are looking for. You're not going to experience the purpose and the meaning you're looking for. He knows that. He knows that only an eternal being can fill an eternal void in your heart. And therefore he's saying, when I'm on the throne, I give you myself. I give you me. And only in me can you experience true freedom, joy, happiness and love. And we are free to enjoy all he gives us. Jesus wants you to be free. So how do we change our hearts? How do we deal with that? I think it's so appropriate now that we're coming to the table where we celebrate the Lord's death. His broken body and he shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And just to focus our minds On this, 2 Corinthians 8 verses 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What's going to change your heart? The degree to which this filters into you is the degree to which your heart will change. Notice what we're not saying is do these seven things. What we're not saying is give here, 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 and here, and here. 
how we steward our money will follow this. But we need to understand the God who had everything. I mean, Jesus speaks and the universe is coming to existence. Experiences perfect love, as I always say, no daddy issues there. Perfect love, perfect power, perfect community. He was wealthy, he had everything. And he knew that if he stayed there, you and I would die spiritually poor. So he decided to come down, take on your spiritual poverty so that you and I would be forgiven, you and I would be included into the family of God and you and I would die rich in eternal life. So therefore, I'm not talking to you about your generosity. I'm talking to you about the generosity of our Lord. And as we come to communion, I'm gonna ask and I often encourage this, that we don't just do communion. We don't just line up and kind of blindly just kind of take a piece of bread, a bit of juice, throw it down and amen. Scriptures say when we come to the table, we need to examine ourselves. And I, will give, I want to give us an opportunity to examine ourselves as we come to the table, specifically asking of my heart, how much am I looking to money for the things that only God can give? And I'm not saying how you answer that question is gonna preclude you from taking communion. I'm just asking you for a moment of truth. I'm asking you just to recognize what is really going on inside of you. And then when we do come to the table, again, the scriptures say we should examine ourselves. Secondly, we need to acknowledge the body and the blood of our Lord which means we need to take, uh, uh, put at the center of our intentions and our worship and our focus who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. So as we examine ourselves, we're gonna then come to him. And I'm gonna ask you that if you take communion this morning, that is a symbolic act of you placing Jesus back on the throne of your heart. You're recognizing the God who was Rich who became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Experience all the blessings in Christ. All the blessings in this age and the next that he promises us. Hope and love that nothing in this world can take away from you. So Father, as we come to your table, we thank you that you loved us so much that you entered our spiritual poverty. You gave it all up you paid the ultimate price in order that we would be reconciled to you. The true source of life, the true source of hope, the true source of faith, love and freedom. And Holy Spirit, I ask now that as we examine ourselves, that you would illuminate where we are at. We are so prone to being blind about these things. So Holy Spirit, give us insights that we didn't walk in with. Not for condemnation, but for truth. And then to come to you, Jesus, to come to your table where we literally break a piece of bread as your body was broken. We drink some grape juice, your blood that was shed for us. And we recognize that you are the true king. And you are the true source of everything that our hearts desire. 
So church, in your own time, examine your heart. There'll be some music playing gently. And then in your own time, go and take communion.